Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, will you go ahead and get it out and find your way, please, to the book of Acts. Will you go to Acts, the 19th chapter, please? Acts, the 19th chapter. And I want to begin this lesson by reading the first two verses. In Acts 19, beginning with verse number 1, the Bible says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, and he came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. He said to them that you received the Holy Spirit when you believed. And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. You know, since the time my son has fluently been able to talk, he's, he's had no problems coming up to me and asking questions. He's had no problem coming up to me and asking things like, Dad, what are the, what are the rules for, for basketball? How do you dribble a basketball? How do you lay up a basketball? How do you shoot a jump shot? Who is this bad guy in this Marvel movie that I've never heard of before? Where do babies come from? Why do people get divorced? What happened to the dinosaurs? Why do I have to have a bedtime every day, but you and mom get to stay as, as long as you want to? Those are the kind of questions that my son has, has been asking me over the last several years, and none of those questions have ever caught me off guard. None of those questions have ever shocked me or surprised me or made me feel like I was being asked something that, that, that is unique to other parents. I mean, as the father of an 11-year-old son, I, I anticipate being asked those kinds of questions. I anticipate being asked questions about superheroes and basketball players and, and dinosaurs and even human reproduction. But about a month ago when I was working in my home office, I did not anticipate him asking me about the Holy Spirit. I, I did not anticipate him asking me, Dad, who is the Holy Spirit? I mean, how in the world did we go from questions about dinosaurs and Chris Paul and Kevin Durant and human reproduction and Marvel characters to that? My 11-year-old son actually asked me, who is the Holy Spirit? And I guess when I disregard his young age, I really should be surprised by that question. I, I really shouldn't be shocked by that question because the fact of the matter is a lot of people have that question, right? A lot of people want to know the answer to that question. These guys that Paul came across in Ephesus, they wanted to know the answer to that question. They were confused about the identity of the Holy Spirit. They were like a lot of religious people in our world today. You see, you talk to many religious folks in the world today about the Holy Spirit. And they'll tell you all kinds of different things they believe. For example, for some people, they'll tell you that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than a feeling. He, he's nothing more than an emotion or an experience. He's nothing more than a powerful feeling you get in your heart whenever you get saved or 
whenever you start worshiping God in an assembly like this one. Other people suggest that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than an it. He is a thing. He is some mythical, indefinable substance that kind of just permeates the universe. And so other people hold the position that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than the mind or the attitude or the disposition of God. Or maybe, maybe he's nothing more than the active force of God, kind of like what you find in the Star Wars movies. Again, for so many different people. They have so many different beliefs about the identity of the Holy Spirit. But here's the question we need to think about. The question is, what's the truth? What does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible actually tell us about the identity of the Holy Spirit? Well, there are several things. There are several things I want to share with you this morning, this lesson, concerning the identity of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I want to share is this. The first thing I think we need to understand about the identity of the Holy Spirit is number one, the Holy Spirit goes by many names. The Holy Spirit goes by many different names in the Bible, like Jesus goes by many different names in the Bible. Like Jesus is called the bread of life and the dirt and the door and the word and the chief shepherd and the way and the Christ and the lion, and the lamb, like Jesus goes by all these different names in the scriptures. So does the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also has many different names that he is given in the scriptures. For example, sometimes he's called the Holy Spirit. And sometimes he's called the helper. Or the comforter. And sometimes he's called the spirit of the father. And the spirit of the Lord. And the spirit of the living God. And the spirit of grace. And the spirit of truth. And the spirit of Christ. And the spirit of God. And then sometimes he just plain called God. Again, like Jesus. Goes by many different names in the Bible. So does the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has many different names that are given to him in the scriptures, and each of these names tells us something very important. Each of these various names tells us something very important about his identity and about his nature. They tell us something important about who he is and what he does and what he's all about. They tell us that he is not the father and he is not the son. Instead, he's a distinct and separate person in the Godhead. That's right. The Holy Spirit is a distinct and separate person in the Godhead. Another way we could say that is the Holy Spirit is part of what is commonly referred to in the religious world as the Trinity. You ever heard that language before, the Trinity? That term Trinity is not found in the Bible. It's not found in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but, but the concept is found in the Bible. The concept of three distinct persons and one Godhead, that is found in the Bible. That is found in the Bible as early as the first chapter of the Bible. When you go in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, we are beginning in our Bible classes 
today the book of Genesis, right? We're going to start with Genesis chapter 1. Well, look at what the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 and verse 26. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, when talking about God and what God was doing in the beginning, the Bible says in Genesis 1 and verse 26, then God said, let us. Do you see that? Let us. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice how here in the first chapter of the Bible, when talking about God, when Moses writes about God, he doesn't write about God in the singular. Instead, he writes about God in the plural. God says, let us more than one. I submit that the us there is a reference to those who make up the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead were there in the beginning. They all three were actively involved in the creation. We learn that in the first chapter of the Bible, but let's see this even clearer in Matthew chapter 3. Let's go to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. After Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Bible says in Matthew 3 verse 13, after being baptized, Jesus immediately came up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is one of the best places in the Bible to go to clearly see the three distinct persons in the Godhead. Here in these verses, you see them very clearly. You see them in three different locations. You have God the Son, Jesus, coming up out of the water after being baptized. You have God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God descending then upon him in the form of a dove. And then you have the Father in heaven speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here we clearly see the three distinct persons in the Godhead, three different locations. But then we go to Matthew 28, one more place, and we listen to what Jesus says before he goes to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice how in addition to the Father and the Son, Jesus says, don't you get forget about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is also a person in the Godhead. He was there in the beginning. He was present at the baptism of Jesus. He is acknowledged by Jesus as someone that we also must be baptized in the name of or by the authority of if we're going to become disciples of Jesus Christ. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not an emotion. He's not a feeling. He's not an experience. Instead, he's a person. 
He is a distinct person in the Godhead. And please don't misunderstand what I mean when I say the Holy Spirit is a person. My friends, when I say the Holy Spirit is a person this morning, I am by no means trying to imply or say that the Holy Spirit is a human being like you and I. In John 4 and verse 24, Jesus says, God is a spirit. God the Father is a spirit. God the Holy Spirit is a spirit. When I say that the Holy Spirit is a person, I am by no means trying to imply or suggest that the Holy Spirit is a human being. But what I am suggesting is the Holy Spirit possesses all of the attributes of individuality and personality. He possesses consciousness and will. He is someone who possesses all of the attributes and characteristics that can belong to someone who has personhood. Go in your Bible to John chapter 16 and notice how Jesus makes this point very clear. In John the 16th chapter, and you might as well get a Bible marker and mark yourself at John 16 because we're going to be coming back there quite a bit throughout the day. But in John the 16th chapter and in verse number 12, when talking with his apostles about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says to them, John 16 and verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, not you, not you, the apostles who he's talking to, that you, not you, the apostles. That's important. I have many more things to say to you, but you, the apostles, cannot bear them now. But when he, 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 the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the, the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine, therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Notice how here Jesus makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. He is someone who has all of the qualities and the characteristics of individuality and personality. He is not an it or a thing. Instead, he is a he. In fact, Jesus calls him a he at least 10 times right there in those four verses. He's not just a feeling or an emotion. He's not the mind of God or the active force of God. He's a he. He has all of the attributes of personhood and personality. In fact, not only do we learn that here in John 16, but we learn it all throughout the gospel. Will you go in your Bible, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, and in verse number 1, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Notice how in, those, in that passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit speaks. He speaks. He gives information. He reveals information. He revealed information to the Apostle Paul in the first century. I submit to you that a mysterious force or emotion cannot do that. It cannot speak. Speaking is the quality of personhood and personality. The Holy Spirit speaks. In fact, Jesus will add to that thought in John 15 and verse 26 when he tells us that the Holy Spirit testifies. He speaks and he testifies, particularly he testifies about Jesus. 
He testifies about the identity of Jesus. He testifies that Jesus is the son of God. That is an attribute or a quality of personhood and personality. He speaks and he testifies and he also is capable of grieving. He grieves. He grieves just like you and I grieve. In fact, in this context, Paul is saying that every time we sin and rebel against the will of God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We hurt the Holy Spirit. That's something we need to think about whenever we are tempted to sin and live rebellious lives. Whenever we reject the revealed word of the Spirit, Paul says the Holy Spirit grieves. He can grieve and he can also be insulted. He can also become angry and offended. He can have his emotions negatively impacted. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, we learn that he's able to guide. He's able to lead and navigate and, and direct. In fact, in Acts 16 and verse 6, we learn there was a time when he actually forbade the apostle Paul from going into Asia and, and preaching the gospel. There was a time when the Holy Spirit knew that some danger awaited Paul in Asia and he kept him from going into Asia for that particular time. He guides, he forbids, and he also has knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 2, we learn the Holy Spirit has knowledge. When Paul says the Holy Spirit has knowledge, he means that the Holy Spirit has consciousness. He has information and judgment. He knows the will of the Father, and he reveals the will of the Father. In fact, speaking of the will of the Father, let's just point out how the Holy Spirit also has will. He has will as well. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, Paul talks about the will of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to miraculous spiritual gifts. Paul says that in the Corinthian church in the first century, the Holy Spirit knew who he wanted to have various miraculous spiritual gifts, and he distributed those gifts according to his will. The Holy Spirit possesses will, and he also can be sinned against. We can sin against the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, remember when they lied about their, their giving, their generosity, Peter said that they had not lied to men, but they had lied to God. In that context, he's talking about lying to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul tells us not to quench the Spirit. The idea of quenching the Spirit means resisting the Spirit. It means rebelling against the, the Spirit's revealed word. And then in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus and his ministry accused the religious leaders of his day of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. The idea of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit means that those men were guilty of rejecting the miraculous evidence of Jesus that was being done by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's so many other verses we could put on our slide right now, but you get the point. You see, you can see, I can see that the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. He's not an emotion. He's not a force. He's not a nudge you get in your heart. He's not some kind of just weird experience you get when you're worshiping God. Instead, he is a person. 
He possesses all of the qualities and characteristics of personhood and personality. He speaks, he testifies, grieves, he's insulted, he guides, forbids, has knowledge, has will. He can be sinned against. He has all the qualities. He has all the qualities of personhood. He's a person. He is a distinct person in the Godhead. In fact, as a distinct person in the Godhead, we need to understand that he also possesses all, all, of the attributes of deity. He is shortchanged none when it comes to the attributes of deity. In addition to having all of the qualities of personhood and personality, he also possesses all of the qualities of being God. We see this as early as Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 2, the Bible tells us that like God the Father and like God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was also there in the beginning. The scripture says that he was, he was hoovering or he was going above the waters. The idea there is the Holy Spirit has creative power and he had an active role in the creation. That's an attribute of deity. He has the power to create. And then when we look at the wisdom literature, the wisdom literature that we're reading right now, we see in place like Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, that the Holy Spirit is, is omnipresent. He's omnipresent. The idea of being omnipresent means that the Holy Spirit can, can, can see everything and, and he can be everywhere. He can see all things and, and he can be in all places. He can do that because he's, he's God. He's omnipresent. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, we learn that he's all-knowing. Paul says that the Holy Spirit has complete knowledge of the will of the Father, because he's able to search the mind for the will of the Father. Because he's able to do that, that's an attribute of, of deity. He knows all. And then when we go to Hebrews chapter 9, we see that the Holy Spirit is eternal. In fact, in those verses, he is called by the Hebrew writer, the eternal spirit, that language eternal spirit shows us that like God the Father and like God the Son, the Holy Spirit has also always existed and he will always exist. He also has no beginning and no end. He also is the first and the last. He also is the Alpha and the Omega, just like we learned about Jesus in the book of Revelation. Let's not shortchange the Holy Spirit, my dear friends. According to the Bible, contrary to what so many people think, he's not merely the mind of God. He's not merely the attitude or the active force of God. He's not on the level, the same level as angels. No, 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 no. He's God. He's deity. He has all of the attributes of deity, he is equal in nature to the other members of the Godhead, and that is one he is a, that is why he's able to be one with the other members of the Godhead. Someone says you keep using this word Godhead a lot. Is that found in the Bible? Oh yeah, it's found in the Bible. It's found in Acts 17 for sure. If you got the old King James translation, which I really like when it comes to this verse, it makes it very clear. When Paul was preaching in Athens at the Areopagus, 
He told the people, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead, the Godhead, is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Notice how Paul mentions, Paul mentioned the Godhead. Paul mentioned a word that refers to the plurality of persons who are God. The plurality of persons who are deity. You see, while there are three distinct persons who are God or deity, we need to always remember that there's only one God. There's only one Godhead. This one Godhead is one in the same way that we are to be one as a body of believers in this place. Go in your Bible, please, to John chapter 17. Listen to what Jesus prayed for in the garden. On this occasion in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, and in this context, he is praying for future believers, future followers of his, people like me and you. He's praying for us right here. And Jesus says in verse number 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be what? They may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice how Jesus' chief desire is that we be one. Jesus wants us to be one as a body of believers. The idea of being one means that Jesus wants us to be united. Jesus wants us to be one in agreement and purpose and action. Jesus wants us to be one in our work and in our mission. Jesus wants us to be one in our fellowship and the things that we believe and do. Even though there are nearly 200 individual Christians who make up this local church, Jesus still expects us to be one. We're supposed to be one. In fact, beyond us being one, as a body of believers in this place, I want you to also think about the oneness that is also to exist between a husband and a wife. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that a husband and a wife are to be one? Isn't that in the Bible? What does that mean? Well, it means that beyond being one in the sexual relationship, and that's certainly part of it, one flesh. We're also supposed to be one in agreement. A husband and a wife also are to be one in purpose and in action. They're to be one in a relationship, walking together in life and love and harmony and peace and unity. The Bible says that believers in Jesus Christ are to be one. And a husband and a wife are to be one. Now, if we can understand the oneness of those relationships, my friends, then we should have no problem understanding the oneness that exists in the relationship of the Godhead. We should also have the problem understanding that those who make up the Godhead are not the same person. The Father's not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father and the Son are not the Holy Spirit, but they're still one. They're still one in agreement and purpose. 
They're still one in action. They still are, are one in the work they accomplish when it comes to deity, whether it's the work they accomplished during the creation at the beginning or the work they accomplished together in building up, creating and building up the nation of Israel, the nation that would bring the Messiah into the world, or whether it was being one and the work they did in building up and, and planning and executing and revealing the scheme of redemption so that you and I could be part of the Lord's kingdom today. The Holy Spirit, he's part of the Godhead. He is one in relationship and agreement and purpose with the other members of the Godhead. But maybe the question you have right now is this. Maybe you wonder why all of this matters. Well, why is this so important? Why do we need to spend a 30-minute lesson talking about the identity of the Holy Spirit? What impact is that going to have on my life? Well, let me suggest to you one important reason, one reason why a lesson like this is important. Let me suggest one important reason why it is so important that we understand the identity of the Holy Spirit. The reason why we must try to understand as best we can the identity of the Holy Spirit because we cannot truly know God without it. That's right. We cannot truly know God Without also knowing the Holy Spirit, I mean, since the Holy Spirit is also God, I think it's safe to say that if we're really going to know who God is, we got to know the Holy Spirit. We got to know exactly who the Holy Spirit is. I'm reminded again of where we started. Acts 19 again. Remember Acts 19? Remember when the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus, he came across a bunch of guys who were all messed up on the Holy Spirit. They believed false things about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know who the Holy Spirit was and, or what the Holy Spirit was all about. And if you go home and read the rest of that section, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul then just lightly brushed that aside. He, he didn't say, well, you know, that's not really a big deal. He didn't say, well, as long as you know God the Father and, and Jesus Christ, that's enough. No, no, no. God, Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't brush aside their confusion about the Holy Spirit. Instead, he taught them the truth. He taught them what the Bible really says about the Holy Spirit. He helped them understand that a proper understanding of the identity of the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to the Christian faith. It is absolutely critical to truly knowing who God is. It is absolutely critical to avoiding all kinds of religious error. It is critical to avoiding, to avoiding the false beliefs that the Holy Spirit is like a pizza you get from Papa Murphy's that you can just cut up and distribute personally all over the place of different believers. It is critical to understanding and avoiding the erroneous thinking that the Holy Spirit is an emotion and he's going to come over you and he's going to lead you to jumping and kicking and shouting and doing cartwheels up and down the aisle and foaming at the mouth. It is also critically important to understanding his work 
as a person in the Godhead, the work he's done in the past and the work he's doing today. In fact, we're going to dive right into those things later on today. We're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, what he's done in the past and what he's doing today. So I hope you'll join me for that. For now, just understand the Holy Spirit's a person. He's deity. He has individuality and personality, while most of the religious world is totally confused when it comes to who the Holy Spirit is, let us, let us always strive to know the truth. Let us always strive to know what the Holy Spirit has revealed about himself. In fact, maybe there's someone here this morning who says, well, I know who the Holy Spirit is, but I've never submitted to him. I've never submitted to his revealed gospel. I've never done the things that he said I must do to get my life right with Jesus. If that describes you this morning, then we want to help you with that. We want to help you submit to the revelation of the spirit. If that means we need to take your confession that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. If you need to repent of your sins and then be baptized, obey the Holy Spirit's revelation, and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Whatever spirit you may need, you may have this morning when it comes to submitting to the revelation of the spirit. Let us help you with that right here and right now. Let's stand. Let's sing.